Welcome to season one of Writing Around the Kids podcast. We've got a brilliant selection of women writers for you who each week will be telling us about the highs and lows of what it is to be a writer in the world. And they're also going to be reading from one of their books, so it's going to be totally ace. We really hope you enjoy it. And welcome to Writing Around the Kids podcast. I'm Sam. I'm hi, and I'm Anna. And we're absolutely delighted today to have Susan Allett. Hi, Susan. Hello. Hi. So Susan grew up in the south coast of England and then moved north to study English at the University of Leeds. She's had a brief spell in Australia where she was horribly homesick only to return to the UK and meet an Australian man who she then went on to marry. Um, Her first novel was inspired by this part of her life. Nominated for the 2021 New Blood Dagger, Susan's debut, The Silence, was published by HarperCollins in August 2020 to broad critical acclaim. The Silence was translated into French, Italian and Polish, and in North America, The Silence was described by the Wall Street Journal as emotionally wrenching. Susan lives in South London with her family, where she's working on her second novel. Susan also works as a mentor and editor for aspiring authors. Welcome, Susan. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. It's great to have you. So um, just to get things um, kicked off, we um, asked for you to read um, a piece of your book. So I'm just going to say a little bit about The Silence. A missing woman, 30 years ago in the suffocating heat of a Sydney summer, the Greens' next-door neighbour Mandy disappeared without a trace. A cold case reopened. In 1997, in a basement flat in Hackney, Isla Green is awakened by a call in the middle of the night. Her father is under suspicion of Mandy's murder. A devastating secret. How well does Isla know her father? Is he capable of doing something terrible? And is there another secret in their community? A conspiracy of silence which stretches deep into Australia's past. So, Susan, would you be happy to read a bit from the silence? Maybe if you could just um, contextualise the bit that you're going to read so that for our listeners they can, they can kind of picture where in the book this is. Sure. I mean, I thought it would just be easier if I read a little bit from the opening. Um, Fantastic. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I've just edited it down so it's not too long. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this is from chapter one. London, 1997. In a basement flat in Hackney, the telephone rings. It's two in the morning. Isla Green stands in the hallway, pyjamaed, barely awake. She's entirely sober. A good thing if a little fragile, a little surprising. No tide of shame waits for her, no bloom of pain. She feels clean in her skin, like a schoolgirl. She can taste toothpaste in her throat. On the third ring, she reaches for the receiver. Hello? It takes her a second to place him. Dad? I didn't wake you, did I? She doesn't know why she's gripping the receiver, why a trill of fear has sounded in her head. It's good to hear her dad's voice, which is more Australian than her own these days. He's got the time difference wrong. At the end of the street, a police siren starts its upward loop and cuts out. Its blue light flashes silently. What time is it there? I don't know. She stretches her free arm above her head, arching her back. 
in the eight weeks and three days since her last drink, she's been sleeping like the dead. Shall I call back later, he says. It's fine. Is everything okay? I wanted to talk to you. Your mother doesn't know I'm calling. She went into town. What is it? The police came to see me, he says. The police? They're looking for a woman I used to know. She was a neighbour of ours back when we first moved to Sydney. You wouldn't remember. It looks like she's been missing a long time. Nobody's seen her in 30 years. The police car crawls past outside, swinging its blue light across the wall. What's this got to do with you? The police think her disappearance is suspicious, he says. They think I was the last person to see her before she went missing. And were you? She tries to sound calm. Were you the last person to see her? I can't have been. She moved away with her husband. I told them there must be some mistake. Is she dead? They think she must be. His voice is quiet, a bad news voice. There's no record of her at all in all that time. Her father died last month, left her most of his estate, but she hasn't come forward. Her brother's been asking around, trying to trace her. He turned up a few things that the police are looking into. One of those things is me. I think I'll leave it there. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. I absolutely love the silence. I just I think it was, yeah, it kept me guessing right until the end. I'm not going to say much about it at all, so I don't want to give anything away to, to anybody who's listening. But in terms of the book, um, you said that it was inspired by your time in Australia. Um, could you talk a, a little bit more about that and like what, you, what inspired you to write a psychological thriller? Um, I mean, I suppose the thing is, I had wanted to be a writer since I don't know when, since, since I can remember, you know, a tiny child, really, I guess. Um, but I kind of didn't really have an idea. And so... It wasn't so much that I was. In, I thought, I know, I'll write a psychological thriller about my time in Australia. Yeah. It's more just that I started writing and that's kind of what came to the surface. I, I realised in several chapters that I was writing about Australia, <laughs> if that makes sense. And for a long time, it was mostly about a woman called Louisa, who, if you've read a um, finished book, but she's a much smaller yeah. character than I thought she was going to be. Um, and she's a British woman who's um, living in Australia and is overcome with homesickness and desperately wants to go back to England. That was kind of where I started from, was something that I'd been through myself, that experience of feeling like I'm not in the right place, I'm not at home, I'm, I don't think this is ever going to be home, I need to get out of here. I've got a husband who very much does feel at home in Australia and wants to be there, and a daughter who is Australian. So I guess I kind of empathised quite strongly with that feeling. Um, and that was my starting point, really. Did you know the, the kind of story that you wanted to write when you started writing it? Um, now you're talking about that it, it kind of appeared to you that it was Australia as, it, you know, as you were writing. But did you know that this was always a genre that you wanted to write in? Or, or was it, did, did that come as part of the story? Um, I didn't, I, I swear... When I started writing it, I wouldn't have known what you meant by genre. You know, the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, my, yeah. my kind of apprenticeship, I didn't know what I was doing, and I learned how to write through writing it. 
but I knew that I obviously wanted to write the kind of books that I love to read. Um, and what I would have said is that I wanted to write um, what I thought of as a well-written page turner. Um, so I wanted to write the kind of book which had a gripping plot, which kept you turning pages, but not at the expense of the of the prose. Um, so I wanted to be, you know, what they what I now know is called a literary thriller. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it wasn't until I met my agent many years later that she used that term and she said, you know, go away and read. I think she suggested Susie Steiner, um, people like that who were, who were right. writing in this this kind of genre. And um, she said it's the kind of sweet spot these words between literary and commercial, where, you know, bringing those two things together. Um, and I thought, oh, that sounds good. <laughs> And interestingly, that my publisher, Borough Press, also published Susie Steiner. So I guess they're the, the right imprint for me. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, well, it certainly is a page turner. So um, obviously, um, you, you said it takes a, it took you quite a long time to write The Silence. And now you're working on your second novel. And how's the experience of, um, I suppose, the process of the first one? You said you learned a lot as you were going along. And so did your, your kind of writing routine and so on now, does that look quite different to when you were working on The Silence? Completely different, actually. Yeah, um, because The Silence it's, um, yeah. and around a, a part-time job as well. And by the time I came to write the second book, um, my kids were both at secondary school and um, I was actually writing full-time at that point. Um, so it felt completely different. I also wrote it, the second one, in a in lockdown. Uh-huh. <laughs> so a completely unprecedented experience and not, not an entirely, you know, easy one, to be honest. I kind of missed the, the way I wrote my first book where nobody's expecting it. Nobody really knows I'm writing it. And it was my little secret, you know, my kind of challenge to myself that I had this impossible mission to try and write a book and finish it and get it published. Um, there's something quite special about that time. Um, so the, writing the second one has been completely different. And in terms of writing the second one, has your has your approach changed as well? So you were saying that when you were writing um, The Silence, that it, some of it was kind of coming to you through the process. Mm-hmm. How, with the book that you're writing at the moment, are you have you found that you're planning in a different way or is it still very much... A story kind of emerging to you as, as, like through the process mm. I mean I was determined to, to plan this one um, I did plan it but but you know of course I veered off plan <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so it did it was um, it took me a couple of years to write book two it's um, I say finished it's sold and it's going to be published next year oh congratulations um, yeah. <laughs> thank you and so it was quicker, still not, well, I don't think I would say it was quick, but it was quite a bit quicker. And I did know what genre I was writing in from the outset, and I, and I had a plan. Um, so all of that, again, was quite different. But I still ended up having to drastically rewrite it before it sold. It was a silence, too. Um, I, I still ended up um, stripping out maybe about, eight or nine chapters and re- and which had been written from one particular character's point of view and completely changing the way I told that section of the story. Mm. So um, I still feel like my process is kind of not 
I don't know, is a writer's process ever really completely streamlined and perfect? It's never going to work that way, but I could do with it being a bit better than it is. (laughs) I think we can all say that really, couldn't we? (laughs) The thinking as well, in terms of that, if you get yourself a bit stuck in terms of your writing, because I I found that, you know, I'll, I'll try and make myself sit down at the desk for four hours and like an hour in, I just think, right, I've, I've, yeah, I've, it's, I've forgotten my train of thought or whatever it is I wanted to be writing. And for me, I found that like getting out of the house and going having having a walk is a good way of being able to to kind of shift that a little bit. Not always, but sometimes. But what what do you do if you find yourself get you know you've written yourself into a corner or you feel a bit stuck where you are? Yeah, I'm, I agree that a walk can really help. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely what I did with my second book. Um, I've figured out all my um, plot problems by walking in circles around Peckham Rye Common, mm-hmm. which, oh, um, is, <laughs> which is where the, the book is mostly set, actually. So that kind of helped in a literal way as well. I remember walking past the River Peckham going, ah, oh, that's what needs to happen. And um, that found its way into the book. So that definitely, definitely worked for me. And But the other thing that can sometimes help is just changing room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, looking at something else, sitting in a cafe can really help as well, especially if you can't get onto the Wi-Fi. <laughs> and so obviously you just said that um, book two's set in Peckham Rye. And with the, um, in the silence, obviously uh, quite a lot of it happens in Australia. So were you mm. kind of writing that from your memory of having been there or did you, um, you go on trips? I've just got back actually. My sister lives in Sydney um oh. and yeah I was very finally after lockdown and everything got to go and see her over Easter um yeah. so it's all yeah the Australia stuff's very vivid so yeah <laughs> did you do re- sorry I've gone off on a tangent research re- <laughs> research trips <laughs> uh, when I was writing the silence um yeah it's funny because um I did go to Australia I think twice while I was writing it which makes me sound like more of a jet setter than I am it took me a decade to write it <laughs> <laughs> So um, it's not as frequent as you would think. But the strange thing was that I couldn't write when I was in Australia. Um, overwhelmed by the mm. presence of the things that I was writing about. And also I felt like, um, who am I to write about this place? I'm a British woman, you know, I'll get it wrong if I try and write about this place. Whereas when I was in London, I was able to tap into something, you know, like a retrospective understanding yeah. of Australia that... that worked for me when I was writing I couldn't write about Australia myself it's strange um so they didn't really they weren't really research trips I mean we were there to see family anyway yeah but I did take lots and lots of pictures while I was there um and some of them I kind of stuck up around the desk when I got back yeah and so my family thought I was odd taking pictures of just you know the street yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to Australian you know suburbia looks so different to England Um, and the colours are different and the you know the the width of the roads and and just things that that to me were odd and and brought back my experience of being there in my 20s so it's even things like um because it is like in some ways it's very it's very familiar but it's things like you're not allowed to park um, facing the other direction so you have to you have you have to if you're parking at the side of the road you have to park in the same direction that the cars are moving in ah, what happens if you awesome. don't well you I don't know if you get a ticket I don't know if it's just like that's just like 
a kind of social etiquette thing right. or if it is actually in their highway code but I remember when my sister had come over here and we'd gone like I'd taken her to the shops or something like that and I went to park but I did like a UE and parked mm-hmm. the other way and she completely freaked out <laughs> <laughs> and it's not necessarily that that's like something that would be in the book but it's just yeah it's so it's kind of like yeah 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 see I've never been to Australia but I thought that there was such a strong sense of it that came through in the silence Susan that I just yeah they, when you're talking about the difference in colors and so on mm. there was there was um there was just kind of like little moments where I was talking about like sandstorms or things that you just you really firmly place a reader into that place mm. and there's a real it's just it, you know it's just a slight shift but it's enough of a shift that yeah there's it, it's got that kind of otherness feeling to it so yeah it's it yeah. Was, I thought that was fascinating I do wonder if it helped that I that I'm not from there and I do like you say that that sense of feeling like an outsider from it yeah in some ways kind of helped me as a writer I think but it's interesting what you were saying as well about not being able to write when you're kind of like almost in it or up against it that you need that sense of space as well to then be able to like re-engage with whatever that that subject or that place is yeah I think yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot in that isn't yeah. there of not being and I guess that's why yeah no I guess you know thinking about the pandemic for example about people writing about it while it was happening it's just it feels too too close, yeah, right? too yeah. real and yeah. too close but just think about in terms of your own inspiration or the things that you you like you enjoy in terms of your own reading as a, as a reader what kind of books do you like to read yourself um I really love for example I'm looking at my shelves as we're speaking I so I love Patricia Highsmith I think she's a genius mm. um I really love Julian Flynn and Sharp Objects one of my favorites what else can you see on your bookshelf that's jumping out <laughs> at you so um, Claire Fuller's Our Endless Number, Number Days is looking at me. I love that one. My Absolute Darling. Um, mm-hmm. Do you remember that one? And then Kendall, um, but I prefer her alter ego, um, whose name has escaped me. Barbara, what's, what is the other um, she writes under? It'll oh, I don't know. Me. Yeah, it'll come to me. I've probably got one of her books here somewhere. I'll see if I can find it. But so she's really clever. She she's got um two personas for sort of two slightly different markets. Um and her oh, like the them. one that isn't Ruth Rendell, Barbara Vine. Yeah. So she's one of my favourites. Oh how brilliant. So, yeah. So so writing in it for a completely different audience, you say? Yeah, I think Ruth Rendell is more um, kind of hard-boiled crime, I guess. Um, and Barbara Vine is a slightly more literary take on... It's still still crime, but maybe more mystery. Yeah, oh, no, I used to love Ruth Rendell when I was younger. Mm. Yeah. Oh, but so that's quite a range, isn't it, in terms of, like, your reading... Yeah, but, like, what you like to absorb yeah. as well. I mean, I, do, I love literary fiction, too. I really love um, Elizabeth Strauss and I've been binging on her recently. For some reason, she got me through the pandemic. Um, yeah. There's something that I love about her writing this, that's just kind of what I needed at that time. So I've been reading a lot of her. I've, I found I really kind of lost my reading mojo um, yeah, I mean, in I the pandemic. Generally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was tough, wasn't it? I mean, we're talking about it in the past tense. Let's hope it's done now. Yeah. <laughs> so like, in terms of, you say that you've been writing for for a long time it's something that you wanted to do since you were a little girl 
Like, what was at what point do you feel? Did you feel that you could tell people that's what you do? You know, it's quite a. It's it's um. You know, that you felt like you could own it and say, yeah, yeah. When people asked you what you did as a vocation, I guess it was when I got published. Yeah. Really. Um, and it, you know, I think it's perfectly valid to call yourself a writer before you get published. But for me, I didn't ever, um, you know, feel like I could say that and you know look someone in the eye and say I'm a writer. I was too kind of embarrassed. Um, to admit that that was something I was doing. I was quite private about it, actually. I didn't really tell anyone until I got published. Um, there were a few people who knew or who found out because my husband leaked it. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't really tell people. <laughs> did you find then, with like writing the second book, because people knew it was happening, did, uh, did you get a lot of people ask, like, asking about it? And how does it feel talking about it when you had kind of a more private experience with the first one yeah um I didn't really talk about it and people seem to know not to ask okay <laughs> um occasionally I would say yeah I'm writing another one but um that was kind of it really um yeah I, I don't know people instinctively know not to ask I think because it's just such a kind of private precious thing and you can burst the bubble if you're not careful like yeah. I would never tell somebody while I was writing the book what it was about it's almost a superstitious thing that I just wouldn't say but with the second book now you say that it's finished and it's it's um sold now is that right yeah it's going to be published I'm still with Barra Press I'm happy to say and it'll be out um they're saying summer 2023 but the edits haven't landed yet I'm waiting for the structural edits so kind of that in-between period of limbo while you're kind of waiting to get back into it oh it is that moment isn't it of just refreshing your emails and holding your breath and hoping when the, <laughs> when that uh, document comes it's only going to be a, a couple of pages instead of lots yeah <laughs> I'm actually um I'm more of a kind of I, my fear would be that there wouldn't be enough edits and, and that the um edits won't go far enough because I'm really I love the edit and I want to pull the whole yeah. thing apart at that point Oh, that's interesting. And so with this second book, I mean, um, are you, is it top secret or are you able to tell us anything about it? No, I can tell you what it's about now. Oh, please do. Pretty much. <laughs> um, so this time I've gone from one extreme to the other and it's about an old um, Georgian house. That, um, I haven't based it on any specific house, but it's the houses that I can see out my window as I speak. Um, looking out over Peckham Rye Common and it's um, it's about a young couple who buy the house and start renovating it and start to get the feeling that something bad has happened in this house um, and after a while that, that becomes more than a feeling and the, the past kind of um, comes back to um, haunt them, haunt them and, but also in a genuinely in a real way comes back to hit them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, fantastic. So about dealing with the history of the house and trying to fix it. Exciting. Yeah, it sounds absolutely brilliant. Oh, I look forward to So you say next, it's next summer that it's going to be published. Yes, that's, that's what they're saying at the moment. These things brilliant. can change. So, yeah. We will watch this space. Um, so just um, in terms of uh, picking uh, one last bit of gem from your writerly knowledge is um what sort of advice would you give to a new writer to someone who who wants to write a novel and they're just getting going uh what would your top tip be um 
I mean, I'm, I'm always wary about these top tips because I think that what could work for one person doesn't necessarily work for another person. Yeah, and definitely. So I, I kind of give this with, with, um, with caution, but what worked for me was to um, try and write a little bit every day. And I was writing with young kids and, and with a full-time job. And what I found was if I could every day without fail um, open the doc. Um, tinker with it a little bit, write a little bit more, and then, if possible, um, try and find one or two days a week when you can write for an hour or more. But but try not to let it go cold. And the kind of metaphor that I kind of use with this is um, to think of it like you're cooking. You know, where you just kind of like got to let the um, flavours infuse and kind yeah. of simmer, simmer, um, and and don't let it go cold. Um, because if you leave it for two weeks or, you know, you try to find the perfect stretch of time to get some writing done, it will go cold on you and, you, and you'll open that document yeah. and think, what the hell was I thinking? And it all looks rubbish and you don't know where you were going and you've lost your train of thought and you end up deleting it. And I, I think I probably did that for about a year so before I hit on this kind of method of just, just writing a little bit every day. So that worked for me. It doesn't work for everyone, but... That was, I just I, I think it, I think it's good advice because I think it's just that thing about showing up and doing it isn't it yeah uh, but yeah definitely also, not let you go that, sorry just to remember as well that the first draft um again I I didn't figure this out for ages but it doesn't matter if the first draft is a bit rubbish yeah it won't look like the brilliant thing that you've got in your head um for a long time if ever <laughs> Um, and so it's about kind of just getting it down and then going back and editing it and gradually you'll start to look at what you're writing and think actually it's not bad you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> well that that's brilliant advice <laughs> thank you so right listen often and just get get your first draft out there that's not going to yeah. be the final piece by any means but just get it out of your head and get it on the page yeah and then worry about making it good later brilliant so Susan thank you so much for joining us and for anybody who's listening who would like to find you um how would we find you in terms of socials or your books okay so the book um is in all good bookshops Mm -hmm. online obviously um and I'm on twitter at Susan Allot and on instagram I'm at Susan Allot author um I'm on Facebook too, but I don't know what my handle is on there. But if you just Google Susan Allen, I think you'll find me. Susan Allen also might be. Brilliant. Um, and I've got a website as well, which is just www.susanallot.com. Fantastic. So thank you so much for joining us, Susan. And so her book, The Silence, you can get it from any good bookshop. And her second book novel is coming out next summer. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Susan. Thank Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed that Writing Around the Kids podcast. For lots of information about writing and writing prompts and tips, have a look at our website, www.writingaroundthekids.co.uk. And search Writing Around the Kids to find us on all our socials. And please like and subscribe to this podcast.